if you still have kids that need to go back uh, older elementary school, you can go through the middle doors. Parents, if you have younger children, you can take them through the side. While that transition happens, if you have a Bible and you want to open it up to Acts chapter 20, Acts chapter 20, that's where we're going to be this morning. We're two, two weeks left in this series, today and next week, and then we'll be done working through the book of Acts. And before we jump into this, I want to do two things. The first is just a, a thank you from our pastoral staff. October was Pastor Appreciation Month. Uh, many of you gave, uh, like your small groups may have provided some food in the office for us at one point. Some of you wrote letters of encouragement or sent emails. Um, some of you sort of gave financially to that. Uh, I just want to say thank you. It's a joy to get to serve this congregation. I speak for our whole pastoral staff when I say that uh, getting to not only serve and lead here but be part of this congregation is a blessing to all of us, and we're grateful for you. Um, we are all probably a couple pounds heavier coming out of the month, so that's, that's good with winter approaching, you know, put on some insulation. Um, but we're incredibly, we're incredibly grateful for you. Thank you for the way that you love and, and care for us. Um, it's a joy to get to serve here. And the second precursor is this sermon... Even before we jump in and read the passage, uh, this sermon is the kind of sermon that you would maybe hear someone give on like their last Sunday somewhere. I'm not leaving. I, for, you know, for better or for worse, I will be back up here next Sunday and we will open up the book of Acts again in a little bit of a later portion. Um, but sometimes it's good to say end of the line kind of things before you actually reach the end of the line. And so that's going to be what, what this morning is. Um, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not leaving. Um, but this, this morning is the type of thing that I would say to you, you know, if we were having like our last conversation, pastor to congregant. And so uh, that's, I, I just want to acknowledge that up front, but also tell you that you're still stuck with me. So I'm not going anywhere. Um, if you have Acts chapter 20 open, I'm going to read verses 17 to 38. It's the very end of what is Paul's third missionary journey. And Luke records the following. It says, now from Miletus, he, that's Paul, sent to Ephesus and summoned the elders of the church. When they came to him, he said to them, you know... From the first day I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, and during the trials that came to me through the plots of the Jews. You know that I did not avoid proclaiming to you anything that was profitable or from teaching you publicly and from house to house. I testified to both Jews and Greeks about repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus. And now I am on my way to Jerusalem, compelled by the Spirit, not knowing what I will encounter there, except that in every town the Holy Spirit warns me that chains and afflictions are waiting for me. But I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course in the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. 
And now I know that none of you among whom I am about are among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore I declare to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you because I did not avoid declaring to you the whole plan of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure savage wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock. Men will rise up even from your own number and distort the truth to lure the disciples into following them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that day and night for three years I never stopped warning each one of you, each one of you with tears. And now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that I worked with my own hands to support myself and those who are with me. In every way, I've shown you that it is necessary to help the weak by laboring like this and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, because he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. After he said this, he knelt down and prayed with all of them. There were many tears shed by everyone. They embraced Paul and kissed him, grieving most of all over his statement that they would never see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your goodness. That in Christ, you've satisfied our deepest needs. That in him, you can continue to meet all of our longings. God, I pray this morning that by your power and your presence here among us, God, that you would preach a better to our hearts than the one that's on the paper here in front of me. God, I pray that your presence and comfort would be nearer to us than any human could possibly offer. God, I pray that we would see your glory and grace and the goodness of the gospel more clearly than mere human words can convey. God, would your spirit in your people, empowering the truth of your word, do that work for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I spent most of my high school college, like working hours as a lifeguard at Clayview Country Club. And that means I got to witness a lot of like young children doing things for the first time at a swimming pool. There are a lot of like fears you can overcome as a child at at a swimming pool. Uh, But one of those is the diving board. And I got to watch many, many times while a child, you know, tackled the diving board for the very first time. And the scene was often the same. If both parents were there, you know, there's one parent in the water ready to like assist in whatever way is necessary, whether that's sort of making a catch, you know, or just once the child's in the water, helping them swim over to the side. And then there's typically a second parent who's kind of just like the presence with the child while they're getting ready to go off the diving board. And so depending on the rules of your particular uh, pool, Maybe mom or dad can go like actually up the ladder and out on the diving board with the child. They might not be allowed to do that. But typically what happened would, 
would be that the child would, you know, go up the two or three rungs of the ladder there, get on the diving board, and they start to do this number, like toward the edge. And they'll take like a few of those little steps and then like turn back and look, try to find mom or dad, whichever one is maybe there on the side of the diving board. And then they'll take a few more. They get close to the edge and they like start giving directions to the one in the water, like closer. All the way out to the edge of the board. And then they start like the frantic back and forth, like one parent there, one there and they're just sort of peeking over the edge. They're just looking for comfort, right? There's an intimidating thing in front of them they've never done before, and they just want to make sure somebody's there with them. We're not all that different as adults. We just learn to hide it better. We get into something that we've never done before. It's intimidating, scary, And we're not standing on the edge of a diving board and frantically looking back and forth, yet we're sort of navigating whatever is in front of us, and we are looking around. Am I alone? Is anybody here with me? That doesn't really change. It just maybe looks a little less obvious as we get older. Where I want to land this morning, and the way that we're going to do this is we're going to take like a reminder of something that Jesus said during his earthly ministry, and then track some of Paul's missionary work. We're going to start in Acts chapter 18, run our way up to the passage this morning. To illustrate this, that the great wonder of the Holy Spirit is that God delights to dwell with us. Do you remember how Jesus consoled the disciples when he told them that he was going to leave them? It's in the Gospel of John, chapter 16, that Jesus is foretelling of his coming crucifixion and ascension. And we're told that the disciples' hearts were filled with sorrow. And Jesus' response to that sorrow in the disciples' heart is to say, it's for your benefit that I go away. And send the counselor. That's what the capital C is, the Holy Spirit. It's for your benefit that I go away and send the counselor because if I don't go away, he won't come. And Jesus is saying, you want him more than you would want my presence. Which is a fascinating statement. Then there's a whole paragraph there in John chapter 16 where Jesus lays out all the benefits of the Holy Spirit's presence. He will convict the world of sin and judgment. He will guide people to righteousness. He'll guide people into God's truth. He'll speak the word of God to our hearts. He will glorify Jesus. He'll take what is Jesus's and declare it to us. And Jesus is saying, you want that more than you could want my presence with you. The Holy Spirit is the presence of God with the people of God. The Holy Spirit is how Jesus could leave the disciples and yet be closer to them than ever. The Holy Spirit is what Jesus left behind with us that we might not just know Jesus intellectually on the pages of scripture, but actually experience him in every season and circumstance of our lives. 
Jesus is telling the disciples, like, trust me, you want that. Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly, says it this way. The spirit has been given to us in order that we might know way deep down the endless grace of the heart of God. The spirit's role is to turn our postcard apprehension of Christ's great heart of longing affection for us into an experience, sitting on the beach in a lawn chair, drink in hand, enjoying the actual experience. The Spirit does this decisively once and for all at salvation, but he does it 10,000 times thereafter. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you want that. And you have it. You have it in the presence of the Holy Spirit with you. The book of Acts covers in pretty good detail four missionary journeys from Paul. The first one is recorded in Acts 13 and 14. It would have been in like AD 47, 48. It begins after Paul and Barnabas are set aside and prayed for and launched out into ministry by the Holy Spirit. The second missionary journey is Acts 15 through like the first half of 18. It would have been like 80, 49 through 52. And that one starts after a quick stop in Jerusalem and actually a parting of ways between Paul and Barnabas. And then in the second half of Acts 18 through chapter 20, which includes our passage, there's the third missionary journey. I've said this at various points in our series in Acts, but it bears repeating this morning. It's easy to have our attention in the book of Acts focused on the human figures, Peter in Jerusalem in like the first third of the book and then Paul in all of his missionary travels in the second two-thirds of the book. But it's the Holy Spirit who is the primary active agent throughout the book from beginning to end. Even just in Paul's ministry, it's the Holy Spirit that sets aside Paul and Barnabas. It's the Holy Spirit that directs Paul in his travels. The Holy Spirit even prohibits Paul from going to certain places. It's the Holy Spirit that empowers the miraculous events that accompany his ministry. It's the Holy Spirit that draws people to the message of Jesus. And Luke, the author of Acts, is very intentional to just constantly put that in front of us as a reader. It is our heart that tends to lose sight of the divine in favor of the human. That is a sermon for a different time. But it is as true while we're reading the book of Acts as it is in life in general. It's easy for us just to get distracted by the flesh and blood thing in front of us and overlook the divine, what God is doing, what the Holy Spirit is doing. And even when we're diligent in the book of Acts to keep the Holy Spirit in view, often what we're looking for is like the fantastic or the miraculous? What are sort of like the incredible, remarkable things that the Holy Spirit does? And how does that answer my questions about the Holy Spirit and his work and presence in the world? And those are there. We've talked about them through this series. But the great wonder of the Holy Spirit is that God delights to dwell with his people. All of that other stuff is an outflow of the Holy Spirit's presence 
Why do you have the spiritual gifts you have? Because the Holy Spirit is present with you. Why is it that these miraculous things are happening through the ministry of Peter in Jerusalem or Paul in his travels? Well, because the Holy Spirit is present, dwelling with them. I want to pick up at the end of Paul's second missionary journey. This is in chapter 18. So if you've got a Bible there, flip backwards. We're just going to look at a few different things that kind of lead up to this passage in Acts chapter 20. Paul is in the city of Corinth. That's the city that gives rise to the letters of 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Look at verse 5, chapter 18. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself to preaching the word and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. That would be Luke's sort of biographical statement about what Paul is doing. If you looked in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, you get the autobiographical statement of that from Paul himself. He says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Verse 6 gives us some of the results of that preaching. Some resisted. He shook out his clothes, we're told. But we're also told that some believed, were baptized. That's down in verse 8. Many of the Corinthians, when they heard, believed and were baptized. And now in the middle of all of that, there must be some degree of discouragement for Paul or even some like stiff resistance to what's going on. Because in verse 9, we're told that the Lord said to Paul in a night vision, don't be afraid, but keep on speaking and don't be silent. For I am with you, and no one will lay a hand on you to hurt you, because I have many people in this city. Pause for a second. What's the big comfort there? Our hearts and minds jump to the no one's going to hurt me part. No one's going to lay a hand on Paul. But what does God lead with? I'm with you. Yeah, no one's going to lay a hand on you in this city. But what did Paul say in our passage when he was talking to the Ephesian elders? In every town, the Holy Spirit testifies me, to me that chains and afflictions await. Okay, so no one's going to lay a hand on you in this city. And that's a nice comfort. But the Holy Spirit is constantly testifying to his heart that there is a lot of turmoil that awaits him in the future. And so what does God lead with in this? I'm with you. Like, I'm with you whether no one lays a hand on you or chains and afflictions come your way. I'm with you. Keep doing what you're doing. That's the big encouragement. So we're told that he continues to preach. He's faithful. We're told he stays there a year and a half. Then he's in Ephesus for a couple of years. And if you're following along in your Bible, jump to Acts 19 verse 10. This went on for two years, the preaching. Every day in the lecture hall of Tyrannus, we're told. This goes on for two years so that all the residents of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. Keep speaking. I'm with you. And Paul is faithful and faith-filled. And so he does. And the Holy Spirit does this incredible work. To borrow from Randy's sermon last week, Paul is faithfully doing the will of the Lord. He accepts his divine assignment. And then the Lord does what the Lord does, which is to move hearts and bring about the fruit of Paul's faithful and faith-filled labor. And then in the middle of Acts chapter 19, things go absolutely wild. 
Paul is in Ephesus. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but there's a big temple to a goddess named Artemis there. And a huge industry around this temple is making these little statues of the goddess Artemis so that when people come to visit and to worship at the temple, they go away with this little statue. That's like you going to Disney World and coming home with the Mickey ears, right? Like, I was there. Or you come home with the statue. Like, I was there. I went to the temple. And so as Paul is preaching and proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah and everyone is hearing this, and people are coming to faith, well, that is a big roadblock to this industry in Ephesus. And so a guy named Demetrius sort of rises up and whips people into a frenzy. And in verses 21 through the end of chapter 19, there's this riot that takes place. And when things calm down, Paul calls together the believers there in Ephesus And then he departs. We're told he goes to Macedonia. Then there's the whole story of Paul in Troas and a guy falls asleep while he's preaching and falls out of the window. Then he moves on from that city to a place called Miletus. Miletus is like 20 miles from Ephesus. And we're told that when he pulls into the port there in Miletus, he calls for the Ephesian elders. So he sends somebody over to Ephesus to bring the elders of that church to him. And what we have in Acts 20, 17 to 38 are kind of like Paul's final words face to face with the leaders of that church. And I'm gonna read it again. And with all of that recap kind of running in the background, I want you to think about what would underlie both Paul's disposition and his charge to these leaders. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and summoned the elders of the church. When they came to him, he said, you know from the first day I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, and during the trials that came to me through the plots of the Jews. You know that I did not avoid proclaiming to you anything that was profitable or from teaching you publicly and from house to house. I testified to both Jews and Greeks about repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus. And now I'm on my way to Jerusalem, compelled by the Spirit, not knowing what I will encounter there, except that in every town the Holy Spirit warns me that chains and afflictions are waiting for me. But I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course in the ministry I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. And now I know that none of you, among whom I went about preaching the kingdom, will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all of you because I did not avoid declaring to you the whole plan of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Men will rise up even from your own number and distort the truth to lure the disciples into following them. Therefore, be on the alert remembering that day and night for three years, I never stopped warning each one of you with tears. And now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. What is it? That would sort of like be the bedrock that Paul is standing on there and also that he's encouraging those Ephesian elders to stand upon. Well, it's what God told him back in Corinth. 
I am with you. It's the presence of God with us that enables us to face whatever is before us. So in the first half of this, Paul provides some reflections on his ministry. And then in the second half of this, he gives a charge to the leaders in Ephesus. And the common thread between them both is God's presence. As he reflects on his ministry, he says, I I was serving with humility, enduring sadness and pain, facing trials from Jewish opponents. I don't know exactly what it is, but there are chains and afflictions that await me in Jerusalem. But that's fine because my life is not ultimately what is of value. I eagerly desire to finish the work that God has placed before me. What would propel that? The presence of God. The presence of God with him that enables him to face whatever is before him. Then he gives a charge to this group of elders that's come. He says, be on guard for yourself and the church you lead. Stay alert because things are going to get hard and it's going to get hard because individuals from within your own body are going to rise up, distort the truth and lead some of the flock astray. But you need to keep laboring. You need to remember the words of Jesus. And what's going to propel that in them? Well, Paul says it. And now I commit you to God. His presence, that's what's going to do it. It's the presence of God with them that will enable them to face whatever is before them. What carried Paul through his ministry up to this point? The presence of God. What's going to carry Paul in whatever he faces? The presence of God. What's going to enable these Ephesian elders to remain faithful to their task? The presence of God. What's going to support them when things get tumultuous within the body? The presence of God. Not flashy sermons or slick ministry or impressive miracles or Paul's massive ministry gifts. What they need is the presence of God. I'm with you. That's what God has to offer Paul. Brothers and sisters, that's what he has to offer you. Like, I just wanna step back and do some reflecting on that. Some of your tomorrows will be wildly successful. The presence of God is your true joy. The danger here is to think of success in terms, that, in terms of things that have no real lasting eternal value. Successful stuff that doesn't truly matter. Your job performance, a promotion, the bottom line in your bank account or your 401k's growth, if you're a student, your grades this semester, if you're a parent, your child's accomplishments in the classroom, on the athletic field, on a stage, your team's victory in a big game, like none of that matters ultimately. Now, those provide momentary happiness They provide a measure of success in some worldly, temporary, but ultimately pride-boosting sort of way. And it's not to say that God is not sovereign over those or providential in those things and that he doesn't care about your happiness even in something that might be trivial because he does and he is sovereign. He's with you even in those worldly, earthly kinds of successes. But look at the successes that Paul mentions, serving the Lord with humility, 
preaching publicly, teaching from house to house, proclaiming everything that is profitable, testifying about repentance and faith. Those are the successes that truly matter. Paul's not giving them like his tent sales report and saying, look at how many of these I made and sold. There are successes that truly matter, that ripple out into eternity. And so to expand on some of those, repentance from sin and growth and sanctification, partnership in missions and the gospel going to the unreached, work of evangelism and the gospel going to the unsaved and salvation coming to households here in our own community, steady faithfulness in opening the word, alone, in accountability, in your small group, with your family. Those are the kinds of successes that ultimately matter. And the true joy in those, God is with you. Even ministry success is not ultimate success. Even ministry success and the joy that comes with it, that's not ultimate joy. The ultimate joy is that God is present with you. And it's like, take something like the slow, often painful, humbling work of sanctification. Your being with God is not hinged upon you meeting deadlines in your sanctification. As if you were to say, look, you take care of this sin by this time and I'll be with you, but you're late and I'm out. He doesn't say that. His presence doesn't hinge on your performance. Like you don't have to earn it. Well, if a certain number of people come to faith because I share it with them, then God will be with me. That's not true. His love doesn't ebb and flow based on your performance. He's with you and he always will be with you. And there's great freedom in that. You don't have to engage in kind of Christian activity so that God will be with you. You are able to engage in that because he is with you. Like that's the thing that empowers it. That's what would enable you to wake up day after day and just open up the word. Like you're in a Bible reading plan, you're trekking through scripture in a year, at some point you're gonna have to slog through Leviticus. And you wake up and you read a bunch of laws that sound like utter gibberish to you today. Not so that God will love you, but because he does love you. You can wake up and have the courage to face even the ugliest parts of your sinful nature. Not so that God will be with you when you get on the other side of it, but because he's with you right in the messiness of it. And some of your seasons will be wildly successful. But the ultimate joy is God's presence with you in the midst of that. Now there's a flip side to this because some of your tomorrows will be heartbreakingly painful. And the presence of God is your great comfort. There's a well-known story in Daniel chapter three. Nebuchadnezzar, who's king at the time, has a giant statue built. And anytime music plays, everyone in Babylon is supposed to bow down to the statue, right? You might know this best because the statue is a giant bunny. Veggie tails. <laughs> 
And every time music plays, everyone is supposed to bow down to the bunny, right? So the statue is built and the music plays and three guys don't bow down, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And that actually causes some turmoil for the king because these guys have risen to a pretty prominent place within Babylon. But there are consequences that are supposed to play out. Anybody who doesn't bow down is supposed to be tossed into this furnace. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are brought to the king. The furnace is heated up. They're bound and they're tossed in. And then to everybody's great confusion, looking into the furnace, what do they see? Four people. The fourth person in that furnace is what theologians and scholars call a Christophany or a theophany. It's the Old Testament presence of the sun. And there he is, just walking around in the flames. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're not burning. I don't know what fiery trials await you. The one guarantee of life in a broken world is that Pain is going to be a reality. But the other guarantee, the corresponding promise, is that God will walk with you in those flames. And so some of that pain could be a result of your faith, kind of like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? There's strain in relationships that mean a lot to you because that individual is not saved and you keep trying to share with them the gospel. And that just makes friendship weird difficulty in society because you are choosing to live your life based on the word of God in a society that does not. There could be consequences at your job or in your finances because you choose your integrity and obedience over promotion. Some of the pain that lurks in your future could come because life in a broken world is just rife with pain unexpected diagnosis. Children that wander from the Lord and make a mess of their lives. The death of loved ones, be they parents, friends, spouses, heaven forbid, a child. Seasons of loneliness or isolation, job loss, church hurt, whether that's from this church or a different one. You might have unwanted season of singleness that lingers on much longer than you ever pictured for your life. Might be a season of barrenness or miscarriage. It could just be small disappointments that kind of accumulate over time and at some point you sort of look around and you realize that the weight of all of those small disappointments feels like it's crushing you all of a sudden. There might be seasons of mental or emotional health struggles. Look, some of the lurking pain in your future could come as a result of your own sin. Most often, these things come crashing into our lives in unexpected ways. But brother or sister in Christ, God will be with you Always, not just until that season or circumstance passes, but every day after that and every painful tomorrow that lurks in your future, I am with you. 
he says. I'm there, not begrudgingly, not because I have to be, not because you've made a mess out of everything and now I've got to swoop in and clean it all up. No, I'm just with you because I delight to be with you. And what we need to remind ourselves of when we remind ourselves of the gospel is that Jesus of all people knew what it was to have lurking and looming pain just hanging over his future. And then he went right into the middle of that. It literally crushed him. And then he triumphed over it in the grave. Walked out of that tomb. And now, brother or sister in Christ, whatever you could possibly face lurking out there in the future, he's not only experienced it in his own life, but he's willing to walk with you through it. There's not a single thing that could be hanging out over your future that Jesus would get to the edge of and say, this one's yours, I'm going somewhere else. That one hurts, I'm not interested in doing it again. He will never say that. He sympathizes with you because he knows what it is to have looming pain in his future. He knows what it is to experience physical agony and relational betrayal and unjust persecution, intense temptation. Whatever might await you in the future, he's already walked around in that once. And he's ready to walk around in it again by your side. And we have to remember that he's un daunted by that and that he will delight in being with you in the midst of it and now some of your tomorrows will just be tomorrow like you're like is tomorrow's just monday and the presence of god is an unchanging reality it is by god's grace that about 80 percent of our days involve a conversation with someone that goes like this how was your day uh it was fine that's a gift of god's grace And it's in those times where we learn to sort of settle into and embrace the ever-loving, never-leaving, always-giving, unceasingly available presence of God. The time to learn and enjoy and embrace and cling to the presence of God in the person of the Holy Spirit is not while you're getting burned in the furnace. That would be like a paramedic showing up and you're bleeding out and he says, okay, now, is now when we learn about bandages? No. He learns about bandages on a dummy that's not actually bleeding. We learn about clinging to the presence of God in the hundreds and thousands of just normal days that God's grace hands to us on a silver platter and says, I'm with you. He's there. We have to train ourselves to recognize and to enjoy his presence. And so I wanna offer just like a handful of rhythms as we close here that could, could be helpful for you in this. The first one is this, turn your heart and mind to the beauty of God in the pages of scripture. And you've probably heard about a hundred sermons where the first application point was read your Bible. So here's another one. Read your Bible. On thousands of just normal days where everything is just meh, fine, read your Bible. It's in the pages of Scripture that we get eternal reminders. 
The reminder that whenever the pain of life in a broken place comes crashing into us, that thing's not final. It will not ultimately win. It will not exist forever because at some point Jesus is coming back and when he comes back, he's crushing that thing and taking you to be with him. We get that reminder in the pages of scripture and sometimes you need it on a day that's just Monday so that when you get tossed into the furnace, your heart will remember. We open up the pages of scripture and we get the reminder that none of this is a surprise to God. That he's sovereign and omniscient and he's seated on his throne and there's nothing that happens in our lives where he looks around and he says, where'd that come from? No, he knows. And he's with you. Second, we need to build in reminders of God's constant presence. And that can look a lot of different ways. I don't know what that is for you. Earlier this week, I was in Erica Thomas, and she's our student pastor. I was in her office, and there were three or four of us having a conversation about something, and I was sitting in a chair, like a rolly chair that spins around, and I'm like a 12-year-old, so I'm like spinning back and forth. And I spun at one point, and I looked at Erica's desk, and there are sticky notes that just like are plastered all over the place. And I started looking at the sticky notes, and they're like passages of Scripture, not tasks that she needs to do. I don't know if she's memorizing those passages of scripture. I didn't ask because I didn't want it to be obvious that I was reading her sticky notes on her desk, you know? Instead, I decided to use it as a sermon illustration. (laughs) She's building in reminders for herself. Like every day as she's sitting there working at her desk, hundreds of just normal days at work, constant reminders. Who God is his presence with her. Maybe it's small prayers that you just sort of learn to kind of like meditate on and lift up to the Lord all the time. It's providing continual opportunities for you to not just acknowledge his constant presence, but actually to return to it and to rest in it. Third, routinely reflect on the evidence of God's grace in your life. His graces far outpace our willingness to acknowledge them. I'll say that again. His graces to us far outpace our willingness to acknowledge them. What did we just sing before the sermon? Grace is overflowing from the Savior's heart. It's overflowing. Oftentimes, we only recognize or acknowledge the graces that meet us in the way we want them to, when we want them to. And then it's like, oh, now I see God. Look at how kind you are to me. No, he's lavishing grace upon you just all the time. Part of the way that we learn to rest in his presence is to become really good at acknowledging his grace. Talk about it at dinner. Whenever you notice it, go ahead and verbally like lift up some praise. He's in control. His mercies are new every morning. His grace is just overflowing to you all the time. Fourth, share your joys and your sorrows with God in prayer. 
the Spirit's very presence with us helps us in our prayer. You maybe don't know what it looks like or how, exactly how free you can be in sharing your joys and your sorrows. Just read Psalms. It's all there. Like there's not a human emotion that you might experience that's not poured out on the pages of Psalms. You don't know how to pray in the midst of your sorrow. Open up to the book of Psalms and just pray what's already there. Your deepest longings, whatever they might be, lift those up to the Lord. You say, sometimes, Tim, I'm in such pain and anguish, I don't know what my deepest longing is. That's okay. We're told that the Holy Spirit will intercede for us. And so you just get before the Lord and all you've got to offer are groans. Toss the groans up and know that the Holy Spirit is taking those and laying them at the feet of the throne. All of your joy, all of your sorrow, all of your pain, God's with you there. You can share it with him. Last, learn from faithful brothers and sisters. Whatever you might face, you're not the first person to swim in those waters. You're not the first person in this congregation to swim in those waters. There's something that we can learn from those who have walked with God through whatever it is that we're walking with God through. Learn, reach out, engage in a conversation. Maybe it's as simple as just paying attention here on a Sunday morning. There's a individual within our congregation who's walking through a, a brain cancer diagnosis and treatment. He's been a part of this congregation for a really long time. And because of his treatments and everything that's been going on, he hasn't been able to be here for a number of weeks. And last week, for the first time, he was back. He walked in by himself. His, which probably took a lot of courage because his just ability to move is pretty diminished. He looks different. He walked in up a couple of stairs and he sat right behind the sound booth over there and he's gone to church here for a really long time. He's not the most expressive man in worship. And I was over here and I can't remember what song we were singing but I happened to look across at one point and he is singing the words of the song. He's got one just fist up in the air and his eyes are closed. I learned more about what it is to walk with God in the midst of pain, just looking at him, than probably if I had like sat down with a book and tried to read about the topic. Immense pain. In ways that I pray most of us will never understand, the end of his life has been shoved before his eyes in the most intensive ways. Fist in the air. The great wonder of the Holy Spirit is that God would delight to dwell with us. He's with you. No matter what awaits you, no matter what is currently happening, no matter how boring or exciting or dreadful 
tomorrow is. He's with you. And he's happy about it. And he's not going anywhere. And the thing that Paul has to say to this group of elders is not, hey, here's all the things I want to remind you of. It's not, hey, remember to do this, 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 and this. It's, I'm committing you to God because his presence is the thing that matters. Amen? Amen. Let's sing.